welcome back to Vascular Crosstalk. My name is Lysandra Villa-Ellis and I am the host of this podcast brought to you by the North American Vascular Biology Organization, NAPBO. Today I am delighted to talk to Dr. Laura Nicholson, who is a professor at Yale University in Anesthesia and Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Nicholson's research focuses primarily on regenerative strategies for cardiovascular and lung tissues. Her engineered blood vessels are currently in clinical trials and are the first life-sustaining engineered tissue to be studied in any phase three trial. Nicholson's lab was also one of the first to describe the engineering of whole lung tissue that could exchange gas in vivo. And this work was cited in 2010 as one of the top 50 most important inventions of the year by Time Magazine. She was inducted in the National Academy of Inventors in 2014 and was elected to the National Academy of Medicine in 2015. Dr. Nicholson received her PhD in biophysics from the University of Chicago and her MD from the University of Michigan. She completed her residency training in anesthesia and intensive care at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and completed postdoctoral scientific training at MIT. We're talking today to Dr. Laura Nicholson and she is an amazing background uh, really experienced, and she, I'm sure, is going to give us some really nice uh, tips. And just her career advice would probably be really um, useful for a lot of us that are um, starting our labs or that uh, want to pursue academia or even industry. So I'm really excited to have her here. And I usually do this. Um, with any of my interviewees. We start with a war association game, just to get to know you a little bit and also relax a little bit. So I'm gonna say something and you're just gonna tell me the first thing that comes to your head. Okay. Okay, so what's your favorite cell type? Smooth muscle cell. Ah, that's the new one. Everybody has told me endothelial cells. Uh, <laughs> favorite model organism? Primate. Nice. Most dreaded lab technique. Most dreaded lab technique? Yes. Um, CRISPR. CRISPR. And the thing you love to do the most in the lab? Plan new experiments. <laughs> How so? Um, it's the best part of science is when you're just starting out and asking a new question or asking a question in a new way and planning out the experiments and gaming out. If this happens, then we think this and do this. If this happens, then we think this and do that. Um, that's the funnest part. Nice. Yes. Um, are you a procrastinator? No. No. How are you not a procrastinator? Let's just give that advice to everybody. Well, I think I, I know I used to be more of a procrastinator, but what I learned over time is that by putting things off, your total pain level doesn't decrease, your total aggregate pain level increases because the item never goes away. And so what I trained myself over time 
is that feeling that you get when you cross something off your list. Um, and not only is it a feeling of accomplishment, but it's also a removal of a pain point. <laughs> and, and so I've, I've sort of retrained my, my brain so that I'm looking for that removal of that item that's bothering me all the time. So that's why I'm not a procrastinator anymore. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Pain. <laughs> um, what are your hobbies? I love to garden. I love oh. to cook. And I love to ride bikes. Uh, I do not know how to ride a bike, but I love to garden and I love to cook too. <laughs> What's the last paper you read? The last paper I read? Yeah. Uh, it was a paper on converting IPS cells into pancreatic islets. Did you like it? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, now that we got that part over and hopefully you're feeling a little more comfortable with me recording this interview, um, I just would like to uh, introduce you and your line of research to everybody. So if you could just give us a little elevator speech about your research, just one to two minutes, that would be great. Well, I've been working since the mid-1990s on using mammalian cells, currently mostly now human cells, and coaxing those cells in the lab to reform functional tissues. So I've been trying to engineer replacement arteries from scratch since the mid-90s. Um, and we've extended this work to not just vascular replacement, but also using similar technologies to create replacements for airway, for other conduits in the body. And most recently, we've been looking at utilizing our engineered blood vessels as cell delivery vehicles to deliver things like pancreatic islets or other therapeutic cells to recipients. That is so interesting. And it has so many applications. The, just the clinical applications are endless. <laughs> can imagine a list of diseases that you could, uh, this could be useful for. How did you get there? How did you start thinking about that? Well, it was sort of came from two, uh, two sort of foci. I'd say one of the, one of the reasons that I started thinking about vascular regeneration, uh, came from my patient care experiences. So I'm, I'm an anesthesiologist and an intensive, <clears throat> intensive care unit medicine, specialist. And though I haven't cared for patients in probably 20 years, um, I did do that for a number of years. And I took care of a lot of patients with severe vascular disease. And I, I also saw kind of the primitive ways that we treat that. You know, we, we rip veins out of one part of the body and move them over to a damaged artery in order to replace or repair that artery. Or sometimes we might use a plastic tube to do the same thing. Um, many of these options are not great for patients. And, um, and since vascular disease is such an important killer, um, I, I really thought it could be clinically useful if we could harvest or harness what we now know about vascular uh, embryogenesis, vascular formation and vascular repair, and harness that and move it into the laboratory and essentially make vessels for patients who need them. So 
So it really came out of my clinical uh, experience. But I would also say that in the, in the mid 90s, the whole concept of tissue engineering or regenerative medicine was really first coming into being. And uh, it seemed that blood vessels, because so much was known about how they form and how they repair, even in the 90s, I thought that would be a good target to try to, to, try to regenerate in vitro. Yeah, I know that's, yeah, no, that's so interesting. And also what you're saying that it was just very, it is still to this point, kind of rudimentary. You take from one place and you don't even care that the cell types are different. Um, you know, you're just trying to patch it up, uh, but getting to that next level, it's what's important and what would actually solve the problem. Um, how did you get interested in doing research uh, to begin with? I know you have an MD background. Um, mm -hmm. How did you get to the research part? Well, I, I also have a PhD. So, you know, I was... Um... I was interested in clinical medicine from before I went to college, but I think in college, I realized that, um, that I, I, I really enjoyed doing science so much. And I thought that being a, a, a pure clinical practitioner, you know, maybe wasn't the route to happiness for me. And so I decided probably early in college <clears throat> that I would apply to these combined programs, MD, PhD programs, where you learn how to be a physician, but you also learn how to be a scientist. And I can remember the day I decided that I was a, I was a sophomore in college and, and it sort of felt like, it felt like, oh, like I've, I've just signed on for an extra four years of training. Oh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but it was the right decision. Good. And how did you get into the vascular field? Um, I'm not sure I even know the answer to that. I, I think, I think that, you know, my, my college training is more on the technical side. I, I studied physics and biophysics as an undergraduate and, um, you know, the circulation is a very mechanically interesting and mechanically complex thing. And so thinking about hydraulics and pressure and fluid flows and turbulence and shear stress um, all of those concepts um, I, I was comfortable with from an early time, and, and that really makes the vascular system something that, you know, somebody with my brain can um, maybe intuit a little better. Yeah. Um, and how do you think, well, if you look at your current work in lab and you compare it to how you started, how do you feel about it? Well, one, one thing that I always tell my students is that, you know, your scientific career, it, there's almost no successful scientific careers that are straight lines. Um, in fact, my, my graduate work had to do with blood vessels, but it, it, was, it was an imaging project. And, and earlier in my life, I thought I was gonna be a radiologist. And so I did, um, I did projects looking at novel ways of reconstructing the images of arteries in three dimensions using technology that was available at the time in the 1980s. Um, and the project fascinated me, but, um, but I, I realized after several years of working in this diagnostic space that I really wanted to be 
more therapeutic. I wanted my work to, to generate something that would help somebody and fix their problem rather than diagnosing how bad their problem was. Right. Um, and right. so I was actually, uh, I spent several years really, you know, while I was completing my medical training, but really not knowing what type of scientific uh, specialty I, I wanted to, to try to jump to. I considered I considered uh, applied mathematics. I considered chaos theory. I considered wow. I considered biomaterials and and drug delivery. But I I settled on on tissue engineering um, in the middle of my residency because it seemed like that was a very uh, it was a new field at the time. It's still a new field, but it seemed like potentially a high imp imp impact place to work and and a place where. I could bring my medical knowledge and also my more sort of biophysical knowledge to bear. And so, but, but it was, uh, it was a definitely a twisty road Yeah, and I, I didn't sort out what I was really doing until the second half of my thirties. <laughs> I think that's a, that's so great to hear because most of the times, uh, I think as a student, you get this idea in your head that your PIs always had it together. And they always knew where they were going and you don't feel that way. So you're freaking out when you have to write your first grant. You don't know where to begin. Um, so it's so good to hear that uh, the honest truth <laughs> about how this can happen to anybody, really. Um, mm -hmm. So I wonder, where do you see this field going in the future? Because uh, teacher engineering has made so much progress. Yet, like you said, it's still a new field, even though it's been around for like at least 20 years now or 30 years. Um, mm -hmm. But it still feels new and we're still making a lot of progress. So where do you see it going? Well, I, I see cell therapy or tissue engineering and sort of in three buckets. There are the pure cell therapies, injectable cell, cell therapies, then there's engineered connective tissues, connective tissues meaning skin, tendon, bone, blood vessel, things like that. And then there's engineered solid organs. And arguably, you know, cell therapy, injectable cell therapies have been in use since the 1980s, you know, arguably with bone marrow transplantation. And so, and so cell therapies are continuing to grow at a rapid pace with, um, with CAR T, uh, uh, inhibitors now and, and autologous cell therapies, immunotherapies to treat different types of cancers. So that's going to continue to really uh, ramp up, I think. And, and um, for those types of therapies, existing bioprocessing, biotechnologies, like how to isolate cells, how to characterize individual cells, how to expand them to very large numbers, millions or billions, all of those technologies are kind of in existence. And so the, these cell therapy applications, you know, if you, if, if you get the science right, the biotechnology around generating the product is, it's not easy, but, but the tools are there. Right. Um, I would say that the second category is engineered connective tissues. Um, and there are some engineered connective tissues that are approved and on the market, engineered cartilage, engineered skin. Um, and there are multiple engineered connective tissues that are in late stage clinical trials. So I really see that as the next sort of success story. But for each of those tissues, it's necessary to design, not just to figure out how to make the tissue, but then to design systems 
so that you can make the tissues at commercial scale reproducibly under a GMP environment. And um, certainly people in academia, and certainly I, before we did this, really have no appreciation of, of how big a hurdle that is. That, that's a big lift. So in, in many cases, we kind, of, we kind of have the science in hand about how to make tissues, but how to, how to make them at scale and then how to test them adequately in, in patients is something that we're still figuring out. And then engineered organs is the third bucket. And that's, that's a bucket where our, the state of our scientific knowledge is still very incomplete. And also the biotechnology is still very, very early. Um, so I see that as being decades out. Yeah. Uh, it's probably one of the hardest ones too, because then you mm -hmm. have different cell types in an environment that you need to kind of at least replicate in, in mm -hmm. a 3D <laughs> environment like I studied along and I can't even <laughs> I think about it it's just a 3D structure that is really complex so mm -hmm. it, it, you start thinking about how it can be accomplished and it seems really difficult <laughs> to accomplish so I wonder how did you see it happening how did you make that jump to studying um you know the vessels and saying I can make this and I can put this in a patient. Let's try it. Well, I think there's, there's a couple stages to it. I think when I first started working on this problem in the mid nineties, the question was first, you know, can it be done? Can you grow a mechanically strong quasi-functional blood vessel from scratch from cells in the lab? Can it be done? And there had been some work on this. There had been a paper published in science in, in the mid eighties that had talked about doing this, but you know, there had been prototypes that had been made, but none of them, none of the prototypes had been really strong enough to actually implant in the arterial system in vivo and function. They were kind of weak and floppy little tubular things. And so, so we spent a number of years in the nineties, just sorting out which were the right cell types, what were the right culture conditions, trying to stimulate the formation of extracellular matrix, which really, which really underlies the mechanics of all connective tissues, including blood vessels. So we, you know, we worked on that for a number of years and then tested it in large animals and we had some success and we published that in science in the late nineties. Um, but then in, in the years after that, during the, during like 2000 to 2000 and five or 2010, it was really trying to take te techniques that we had developed for animal cells and then to translate them into human cells. And that's also a big leap um, because when you take cells from an elderly human with vascular disease and try to coax them to make a new artery in ways that you use for young, healthy animal cells, the outcome isn't always the same. And so, so <laughs> we had a lot of you know, zigging and zagging to try to get that process to work. Um, and, uh, again, once you have an engineered human artery that you think could be functional in humans, it's really not ethical to jump straight to humans without doing animal work. Um, but if you have a human tissue, then using an animal that's as close to humans as possible is really the best test method. So, so we began testing our engineered human vessels at, at Humicide at my startup company, we began testing them in non-human primates in 2008 and did several years of work there. 
um, which was really the basis for you know, collecting that data on how the vessels functioned and, and their safety was really the basis for going into man um, in late 2012. Wow. What advice, what, what would you say to um, anybody that thinks that has a research project that could translate um, in some way to human therapeutics, um, you know, that could translate into starting a company? What advice would you have for them? Well, you know, I think that's sort of a broad question, um, but, but, you know, in general, I think that there's a couple of things that, uh, th that are very important. Um, uh, one is um, really being very uh, straightforward with yourself in your own mind about the technology that you've developed and whether or not it's really solving a, a real clinical problem. You know, all researchers fall in love with their problem. Um, that's the nature, that's the nature of research. Um, but many, many scientific problems or technical problems are beautiful in and of themselves, but don't have a lot of real clinical utility. So I think question one is really sort of taking a hard look at what it is you're doing and saying, does this solve a real clinical problem? And if the answer is yes, then I think that the second, the second thing is really finding a good, you know, aside from doing in vitro testing, really finding a good animal model system that really will be predictive of what you're going to see in man. I think that's important from a safety standpoint, mm -hmm. um, but it's also important from a, from a scientific understanding standpoint. I mean, we, when we started implanting our vessels into non-human primates, we learned a lot about them. And in fact, we tweaked some of our processes early on to make sure that the vessels were functioning the way we wanted them to. Um, I'm very glad to have learned that in, in an animal model rather than learning that in patients. Of um, so so I, I think that not only, not only does getting a good animal model help make your human experiments safer, it can also make them better right. because you can improve what you're doing. So I think those are the, those are the two big things is, is being honest about, is this a real clinical problem? Is there really a need there? And am I using the best animal system to, to test it out? Right. Um, that, those things are just great to think about. I, like you said, everybody falls in love with the research. Uh, that doesn't mean that we all need to start companies. Um, <laughs> so I want to get a little bit into mentorship uh, and who you identify were good or important mentors in your life that helped you uh, get to where you are? Well, yeah, so I think, you know, my graduate mentors uh, in graduate school, I think were important because they taught me to think carefully and slowly about what I was doing. And developing that mental discipline, I think was important. Um, my postdoc mentor, Bob Langer at MIT, who's still a professor there, very famous guy, um, he taught me, and, and another mentor actually at Michigan, a surgeon there named Bob Bartlett, they both taught me about focusing on problems that are going to be impactful. Um, and this is another thing that I say to my students all the time, you know, we're, we're all smart, you know, we all work hard, everybody's gonna work hard. 
if you're going to work hard, you might as well work on hard on something that matters. Um, and as a corollary, you might as well work hard on something that matters that you're also that that you also really like. Mm-hmm. You're going to work hard anyway. Might as well work hard on something that's fun and that and that might matter. Um, so so I think that that's some of the best advice that I've gotten um, from mentors of, over time. And how do you think that your mentoring experience? as a mentee has impacted or informed how you deal with your mentees now uh, in the lab? Well, I'm not sure I can answer the question in the way that you posed it. I think I was very fortunate as a younger person, maybe fortunate or maybe this was purposeful on my part, but I tended to gravitate toward mentors who would kind of leave me alone <laughs> and who would offer help when 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 I knocked on their door but who um who were not sort of hovering over me and i i do think that different students like and prefer and need different amounts of oversight or or interaction um there there are some students who um will will get distracted by problems that are that are sort of secondary and so keeping them on track is important. There are some students who kind of know what the next step is, but they want to be reassured that there's that they're walking in the right direction. And uh, there are some students who don't want guidance at all, but who in fact really need it. <laughs> so, so, you know, if anything, I've learned that mentoring each student or postdoc, it really is an individualized thing. And um, it took me a while to learn that as a faculty member, that, that there's no one size fits all. Um, but you have to have a different level of support and interaction with each person. And that's something that you just learn to do over time. That's, uh, you know, it's like science, you know, management, scientific management is not something that you're born knowing how to do, sort of get better at it over time. Yeah. So um, we're Wrapping up uh, our interview, and it has been, it's been so great talking to you. I've learned so much about your experience. Um, and I would like to conclude by asking you if there's anything that you, if you could talk to the past you um, regarding directing your career or setting up your lab, uh, working out the minute details of your research project, getting funding, all of those things. If you could talk to the past you and tell her something, do you have anything like that that you would say? Well, I guess I I would say, and maybe this is easier to say when you're um, later in life. And so I don't know if it's something you can say to a younger person, but the younger me, I'm a very driven person, but the younger me was very driven and very anxious about timelines and outcomes. And um, I felt as if I had to be anxious because if I weren't anxious, maybe I wouldn't be driven and maybe I wouldn't get stuff done. I'm not really sure that's true though. I think that, you know, one thing I have learned, I'm, I'm almost 60 and, and I look back and with all the travails and all the ups and downs, you know, I look back and I notice you know, I haven't died. <laughs> I haven't died. Everything has kind of worked out. And sometimes there's been hills and valleys and ups and downs. And sometimes I've had to paddle a lot harder than other times. 
but truly I've never died. <laughs> and so, you know, having that sort of serenity that things will work out um, is something I wish I had when I was younger. I'm not sure I could have had it, but I think if I had had it, I think I would have been less miserable and probably the people around me would have been less <laughs> miserable. <laughs> That is great advice. Everybody calm down. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't mean don't work hard. It doesn't mean don't focus. Yeah. But don't be so anxious. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Vascular Crosstalk, where we talk to Dr. Nicholson about her experience and her work in the vascular field. We would like to hear from you. So please let us know what you thought about this episode future topics that you would like us to discuss, and other people that you would like to hear from. You can reach out to us via Twitter at Vascular Biology. We look forward to hearing from our vascular community. This podcast was produced by Navos Education Committee, and I want to thank Niha Uha and Strider Meadows for their work in making this podcast possible. This was Lissandra Villa-Ellis for Vascular Crosstalk. Until we meet again. <laughs>